Welcome to The Final Word, a Bible teaching ministry with pastor, teacher, and author Jim Andrews. The Final Word is grounded on the invincible conviction that what the Bible teaches, God teaches. And that is the last word. On this program, truth still matters. The Bible is in, Babel is out. The Final Word is funded by listeners like you. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about the program, please go to our website at thefinalwordradio.com. There you'll find archives so you can listen to any program you may have missed. Visit us on our social media platforms at The Final Word Radio and write us a note. We love hearing from our listeners. We'll provide other contact information at the end of the program, so have your pen ready. And now Jim Andrews continues his current study of God's Word. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us again on The Final Word. Before I launch today's exposition, I want to make our listening audience aware of not only the books that I have authored, but some articles that I have written that you might be interested in and tell you how to access them. Over the years, I have done a good deal of writing, as time allows, to prepare resources that I think should be helpful to my congregation and also helpful to you, our listeners. If you will go to jimandrewsbooks.com, that's one word, jimandrewsbooks.com, you will find there information describing the books I have authored, one of them co-authored with my daughter. On top of that, on the same website, you'll see a tab that says Articles. If you will open that with your cursor, you will discover there are some articles that I've produced over the years that you may find interesting and helpful. For example, one of the most recent articles was my take on the demise of the culture wars and where I think we ought to go from here. Another article that appeared several years ago in a journal for biblical manhood and womanhood is entitled Boundaries Without Bonds. Another is a rebuttal of a tract that appeared several years back. The author attempted cleverly, but as I will show unsuccessfully, to persuade us that the Scriptures do not condemn homosexual practice. After all, that has all been a misunderstanding. Well, there will be others, but I mentioned those three. I'm not a regular blogger, but when sometimes things pop up on my radar that I feel I would like to address in a thoughtful way, I will sometimes produce a longer article like some of these. We continue our exposition of the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 6. We've just finished that great warning passage where the author reminds these Hebrew Christians who have experienced so much, just as, for example, Judas did. But in the end, Judas' faith proved to be hollow. And if they, having experienced all of this work from the Lord, been up so close and so personal to it, They've been enlightened, they've tasted of the heavenly gift, they've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. That does not necessarily mean they've been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. I've explained that. They've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. All of those things could be said of Judas. And then if they fall away, he's talking about an act of apostasy. Well, he wants them to know that will be final and that will be fatal. It'll be impossible to renew them unto repentance. It's not an idea. You can be saved, and then you fall away and get lost, and then you can come back and be saved. It's not that Arminian concept at all. If you fall away in this situation, it's over, it's dead, it's done. Since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame by their walking away from him. But he goes on in verses 9 and 10, and he tells them, We are convinced of better things concerning you. Even though we're talking this way, it's... My conviction, the author says, that you're the real deal. And 
he feels that way because he's seen of them things that accompany salvation, even though we're talking in this way. It's our obligation to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. The Word of God is full of encouragements. It's full of warnings. God uses both of those. God is not unjust so as to forget your work. It doesn't mean that God owes them anything. It just simply means that God promises in His grace to honor those who honor Him. And this writer is convinced, as he looks over their spiritual resume, that they are those who have honored God in their work of faith for Him. He's convinced that despite the wobbles in their wheels he's seeing right now, they're floundering. He thinks he sees evidence that they're real. And if they're real, God's going to keep them. But we desire, he says, verse 11, that each of you show the same diligence, the same as you did in the past, so as to realize the full assurance. Their cup is not full, assurance-wise. I want you to realize the full assurance of hope. Hope is faith that looks forward. The full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, and enduring faith and perseverance. I was saying, and I will review, that energy is a great antidote for apathy. This principle applies to the spiritual life as well as the rest of life. I was saying as the last program ran down, any pastor can tell you that lethargic people tend to become problematic people. Faithful engagement in the work of Christ, which our author is exhorting these people to get re-engaged, that's a big key to hopeful contentment in the faith. Doulessness feeds faithlessness, which in turn feeds hopelessness. I was saying that sometimes you'll hear folks say, you know, Pastor, God does not seem real to me. Now, there may be, I said, a lot of reasons for that pathology. But sometimes, among them, is the fact that we aren't being real with God. Look, friends, if we want God to be real to us, we need to come alive, get re-engaged, and move out in serving the Lord. These people had been doing that. But somewhere along the line, they slowed down, they got sluggish of hearing, and they got sluggish in service. If we want God to be real to us, I say again, we need to come alive, get re-energized, and move out in serving the Lord. And then that full assurance of hope will revive. All will seem real and well again. But if you're not alive to God, friends, don't expect God to seem alive to you. This is in part where things had broken down with these Hebrew Christians. Discouraged, depressed, they disengaged to some degree. You see it in contemporary churches all the time. With that disengagement comes a measure of disenchantment. And with disenchantment comes disinterestedness in the things of God, and that's exactly where they were as this writer is speaking to them. Hence, their sluggish ears for the truth. All of this was self-inflicted, and it is a cycle that is very contemporary. I see it a lot in older saints, and I can say that because I'm one of them. Their energies decline, they retire, even from the Lord. And then they start to devote what time and energy they have left to entertaining themselves and taking it easy. It's no wonder that some of them become a spiritual shadow of their youthful selves. It's no wonder that some of them become disenchanted with everything, that they become crabby, disengaged, and they say, let the young people do it. And now their ears are sluggish. Oh, they sit there in church and they listen. Listen, I'm not talking about all older saints. 
I'm talking about a crew of them that you'll see in most every church. And they just sit there, but the ear, which is the mouth of the soul, they're sluggish. Their hearts are sour. Listen to me. Are you an older saint? Are you over 50? God never gave you a license to quit on him, my friend. Maybe you need to change assignments in the Lord's service. But always remember, you are still on assignment. As my late father used to say, I can't do, Jimmy, all the things I used to do. But one thing, he said, any senior can do is pray for those who are doing. Even in his mid-80s, my father was still going to nursing homes and around to neighbors trying to help, fixing roofs and whatever. My friend, you can retire from any work, but you cannot retire from God's work. Energy, I say again, is a great antidote for apathy. Engagement is a great stimulus of contentment and confidence in our Christian hope. So, if I want to keep my battery charged, you want to keep yours charged? If I want to keep my battery charged, I must run the engine. Typically, I go to Florida on my vacation to my brother's place, and he leaves a car there. Now, this picture has changed. He's learned how to deal with it. But just about every time I went there, it would be there for weeks and months at a time, and that warmth and humidity, and the battery was dead. It needed to be running some. Well, that applies to the spiritual life as well. If you want to keep your spiritual battery charged, hey, run your engine. Don't be idle in the Lord's service. Now, don't confuse what I'm saying with getting busy in a lot of just simply churchy duties. The key is doing whatever you're doing in the Lord's name and for the Lord's sake, for the saints' sake, just because they are His, and not doing it out of a sense of clubbish duty. That lower horizontal motive never stimulates or ignites full assurance of Christian hope. And lots of times, our so-called Christian service just descends or devolves into the lowest common denominator, club service. That's not what it's about. It is service to Christ in His name, to the saints of God for His sake. Now, having just called upon His Hebrew Christian readers not to waver, but to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, meaning perseverance through trials that challenge faith, they inherit the promises pertaining to salvation, our author proceeds to show us just how firm and secure God's promises are to the heirs of salvation. For we are in Christ, who is our new and great high priest before God in heaven itself. To accentuate that security, he appeals to the example of God's steadfast faithfulness in the case of Abraham. Abraham's a spiritual father of not just believing Jews, but in fact he is the father, he is the spiritual leader of us all who trust in God as Abraham did. We see that in Romans 4:16. So in verses 13 through 14, he writes, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since God could swear by no one greater, Naturally, he swore by himself, and God said, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. That was his promise to Abraham. When God made the promise to Abraham to give him an inheritance, to make of Abraham a great nation, and through Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth, back in Genesis 12, since God could swear or solemnize his oath by no one higher, God swore by himself. God is the ultimate sacred witness. 
And he said, I will certainly bless you. I will certainly multiply you. Well, God performed his promise. That's a fact well known to these Hebrews. Thus, he says in verse 15, having patiently waited, Abraham obtained the promise. So let that example, he says to his readers, let that example of God's faithfulness to Abraham serve you as a reminder to wait patiently, as did Abraham. For Abraham's faith, he reminds them, was sorely tested. Having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Strong in hope, Abraham did not grow discouraged and throw in the towel, as they are tempted to do. So let them not become discouraged by what they have to go through in the interim. Wait patiently on God to do what he promised. His promise of salvation will not fail, because God did not promise us salvation lightly, but he invoked the greatest possible enforcing witness himself. Well, God has acted toward us in a similar way and for the same purpose. Verse 17. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise of salvation in Christ the unchangeableness or the immutable fixity of his declared purpose, just for good measure to put to rest any doubt about his intentions, God interposed an oath. F.F. Bruce reminds us here of those recurring as-I-live appendages in so many Old Testament oracles throughout the Old Testament. Now, if it is not already transparent, our author is specific about God's reason for sealing his promise of salvation to us with an oath to make it, in Bruce's words, doubly sure. God appended an oath in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, that's one, we might have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope before us. Our double certainty of the fulfillment of God's word pertaining to salvation derives from two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie. First, it is impossible for God to falsify his promise. And secondly, it's impossible for God to falsify his oath. The bottom line is that God, by his very nature, is faithful to his word, in this case to his promise and his oath. There are the words of Philo, the famous Alexandrian Jew, who lived roughly around the time of Christ. I quote, There is nothing amiss in God's bearing witness of himself, for who else would be capable of bearing witness to him? He alone shall make any affirmation regarding himself since he alone has unerringly exact knowledge of his own nature. God alone, therefore, is the strongest security first for himself and in the next place for his deeds also, so that he, God, naturally swore by himself when giving assurance regarding himself, a thing impossible for anyone else. So this strong encouragement in our life of faith in Christ is intended, verse 17, that we who are heirs of the promise of salvation... We who have fled for refuge from condemnation in laying hold of the hope of eternal salvation before us. That's great encouragement. Again, Bruce says aptly, we are refugees from the sinking ship of the present order. I like to call it the Titanic. This ship is so soon to disappear. Our hope is fixed in the eternal order, where the promises of God are made good to his people in perpetuity. Let us remember, folks, that this world is not our home. 
Let's remind ourselves that our treasure does not reside here. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is not where our treasure is. You and I as believers are merely sojourners here. We're here on assignment. We're here on assignment commissioned by Christ. But we're looking forward to the great renovation. We're looking forward to the time when this world and history, as we know it, shall be no more. We're looking forward to the time when the kingdom of God will come and Jesus Christ will reign on earth. And those of us who have trusted in him will reign with him as the family of the living God. My friends, if any of you are not on board with Christ, I appeal to you to heed his gracious invitation. I appeal to you to flee to him, to take refuge from this sinking ship. For this world, as I've said, is the cosmic equivalent of the Titanic. Don't make the mistake of dancing while the ship is sinking. Don't be polishing brass when the ship is going down. In Jesus Christ alone, there's hope of rescue and relief from condemnation. In Christ alone, there is hope of the resurrection from death. I admonish you in the name of Christ to flee to him as fast as you can. Well, the writer in verse 19 reminds these Hebrew believers, this hope of eternal salvation, he means, we have as an anchor of the soul. This hope of eternal salvation is both sure and steadfast. And it's a hope that enters within the veil, referring to the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament where the high priest entered once a year to make atonement for the people. Anytime you say salvation, it reminds us that it is needed. It reminds us that we live in a world where people are under condemnation under condemnation because God is there and men do not serve him. They have not believed in him. They do not trust in his son who came into the world to redeem us. Our hope of salvation is based upon God's promise. God's promise of salvation is based upon the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins. The wages of sin is death. One for one all die, and it's not just physical death, it's eternal death. That penalty must be removed. Jesus Christ came into the world to lay down his life as an atoning sacrifice sufficient for all who would believe in him. That sacrifice of Christ for our sins, he's the high priest and he's the sacrifice rolled up in one. And that sacrifice serves the soul like a great anchor. All that means, in the phrasing of A.B. Davidson, is that all who share this hope are secure. We are steadfast. In every storm of doubt or circumstances, we are moored to an immovable object, that is, the atoning sacrifice of Christ, and that does not yield to strain or pressure. Our hope, our hope of salvation in Christ, is steadfast, and it's absolutely secure. It does not wax or wane with changing circumstances. The only thing that could stand against it is the lack of atonement the lack of a sacrifice that atones for all our sin. But he became sin for us on the cross in the plan of God. He became our sin bearer, our substitute. I like to say he was treated as if the whole bag of the world's sin was placed upon him. And there he died in our behalf. Repent and believe in him. So our hope is steadfast and secure. But we don't need a high priest, 
of the Old Covenant to go into the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem and there bring the blood of a bull or a goat. No, we've got a great high priest, a great high priest of the order of Melchizedek, a great high priest who is eternal, not temporal, as were the sons of Aaron. And we don't need the blood of a bull or goat. Those were merely symbolic. They were merely pedagogical instruments. They were mere shadows. The very substance has appeared for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And he has laid down for us an all-sufficient atoning sacrifice. Therefore, he and his atoning sacrifice, this high priest, who is also our sacrifice, he is a secure anchor of our souls, and he has gone into the real Holy of Holies, into heaven itself. We know now what our author means when he says our hope is sure and steadfast. It's firmly founded, it's rock solid, it's fixed and immutable. What does he mean when he further adds that our hope enters within the veil? Well, every Hebrew would understand that reference to the veil as that holy petition in the temple which celebrated the holy place from the holiest place, the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies symbolized the dwelling place of God. The temple in Jerusalem, however, was only a shadow or a type, an earthly pattern of that true temple which is in heaven. I've mentioned that. So our author is telling these Hebrew believers that our Christian hope runs before us, runs before us not in a priest of the Aaronic order, but runs before us in the person of Jesus Christ, runs into the true Holy of Holies, that is, into the very presence of God, at whose right hand our great high priest stands for us. He stands there as our mediator. He stands there as our intercessor. He stands there as a priest, not after the temporal order of Aaron, but he stands there as a priest after the order of Melchizedek, an enduring priesthood, and he's there to forever offer his blood in our behalf and render us acceptable in the sight of God. That is why our hope in Christ is steadfast and secure. We are covered forever by the all-sufficient sacrifice of our great high priest in the true Holy of Holies, in heaven itself, in the presence of our Father. What our author is talking about is the consummation and the fulfillment of all the types, the shadows embedded in the symbolical religious institutions and customs of the Old Covenant. They're tempted to go back to that. He is saying, you can't go back to that. That's just the shadows. You have the substance. Don't be crazy. What they have in Christ is the substance to which all the shadows pointed. What they have in Christ is a high priest who endures forever, doesn't die like the representatives of the line of Aaron do. We have a high priest not standing in Jerusalem, but we have a high priest who's standing in the very presence of God himself. To go back, folks, he doesn't say this, this is what he means. To go back to that would be like leaving an automobile and going back to the horse and buggy. You see, what we have in Christ, understand, that's the ultimate hope. The ultimate hope. Surely, you would never think of going back to that. Now our author, after digressing from his subject matter of 510 to chasten and warn his readers about their spiritual lethargy, he returns to his original subject. And here in chapter 7, he begins to expound 
the meaty and very important subject of the heavenly high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ, according to Melchizedek. Well, thank you, dear friends, for joining us on The Final Word. God bless you, and have a wonderful day. The Final Word is a listener-supported ministry. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about this program, please visit our website at thefinalwordradio.com. Our postal address is The Final Word, 4565 Carmen Drive, Lake Oswego, Oregon, 97035. Our email address is info at thefinalwordradio.com. Our phone number is 503-699-9840. If this program has ministered to you, tell a friend about it. We do solicit your prayers for God's hand upon this outreach. Just be sure the work is in the hand.